Section 28 of From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Bottle. From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. Edited by Olive Beaupre Miller. Mr. Hampton's Shipwreck by John Maysfield. When I was a youngster of about eighteen or nineteen, I was stranded with the ship's company in a lonely reach of the Magellan Straits. The ship lost her way in a fog and went on the rocks. We got ashore in a ship's boat, which was so dry from standing on deck that the seams all ran little reels. It is a gloomy part of the world. It is all rocky hills, frosted with snow and torn with glaciers. Here and there was a colony of birds all so tame that we could catch them. It was very bleak and grim living there. We rigged up a shelter out of a sail. We used to sit and shiver while the wind howled over us. I can tell you the wind there takes the heart out of you. It comes up straight from the pole with a kind of yell that scares you. We had nothing much to drink either except melted snow. As for food, we had the birds, a few shellfish, and a few very precious sodden biscuits which had been left long before in the boat's locker. They were in a horrible state, but they were great dainties to us. We had no other breadstuffs. Well, there we were, in a part of the world where no ships ever came. We didn't even know the name of the reach or bay into which we had come. There we were, so lost that sometimes a man would go out of the hut and wander up among the rocks and stare at the loneliness, and then come back and cry. Lonely? You don't know what loneliness is till you look out of a hut in the morning and see an iron-gray sea sulky with frost and the masts of your ship sticking out above the water. She had been a two-masted ship. Her name was the Inesita. There she was, deep in the sea, with the fish flipping in her hold and those two iron fingers raised. We couldn't stand the sight of those two masts. In the end we rowed out with one of the boat flags, and a sailor named Jim Dane swarmed up and made it fast, so that she might cut a better figure. There was a hill at the back of our camp. At least, when I call it a hill, I insult hills in general. It wasn't a hill. It was a rock from which all the earth had been washed away by the weather. It was an extinct volcano, about 3,000 feet high. There was no grain of earth upon it, only shell and rock which had been frozen and buffeted till they were rotten. It was like black cake dusted with snow instead of sugar. We called it Mount Misery. We went up it soon after we landed, hoping that it would give us our bearings. We hoped to see the channel from it, or the smoke of some steamer in the channel, or at the worst the smoke of some Indian's fire. But nothing of the kind. One could see the sound curving and winding, and hills like Mount Misery shutting out the view, and crags and ghastly great boundaries, and never a green thing. There were always clouds, too, not very far away. We could see them banked all round us, but always thicker to the south, always rather reddish, I remember. They gave one a feeling of being shut in, yet though they were never far off, they looked in a way like distant land as though they were a kind of ghost land into which the landscape turned. The worst of it was that they were always shutting down and blotting everything. 
They closed in twenty times a day. It would come on a thick, whitish yellow fog, wet as rain and raw with cold. Horrible. And whenever this fog came down, we couldn't see our hands in front of us. Once we tried to get away, but first we had to caulk our boat with seaweeds, since she leaked like a sieve, and then we had to provision her. We killed a lot of stupid seabirds. That was horrible, too, for I have always loved wild creatures. When we had provisioned the boat, we had to water her. Then the question came, who should go in the boat? We couldn't all go. There were over thirty of us. The boat would only hold a dozen with any comfort, and I think everybody there was more than eager to be one of the first away. We spent a whole evening arguing about it, and then put it to the lot. We drew matches out of the captain's hat, and those who got the unburned matches were to go. The second mate and ten others were the lucky ones. They were the gladdest men in camp that night. They were in great spirits. They made sure that they had only to get out of the sound to run into the main channel where the steamers pass two or three a day. To leave the camp was only a step to getting home. I thought of buying, or rather of trying to buy, the place of one of the lucky men, but then I felt that I ought not to do so. We were all equal there, and the fates or providence had chosen to give him this chance in preference to myself. I decided that I would bear what was coming to me like the rest, so I said nothing. After the drawing of the lots, the second mate and the other officers argued and wrangled with the captain about the course the boat should steer. They could not agree about it. They were not sure within twenty or thirty miles of where we could be. The sound spread out its arms like a great gray octopus. It was heartbreaking to see it. How were we to know which arm led to the channel? We tramped along arm after arm over those miles of rotten rock. We would see the bends on ahead curving round the hills, and each bend led, as we thought, into the channel, but none did. You cannot think how cruel that branching water seemed. We called each arm by a bad name. Misery Harbor, Skunk's Delight, Disappointment, Old Footsore, etc. Well, it was decided at last. They gave the second mate a course, and when day dawned he sailed with his tin hands. We lined up on the beach and gave them three cheers, and they gave us one cheer back. Then we sang a sea song called Rolling Home, which sailors are very fond of singing. After that they cheered us again in the sea fashion with just one cheer. We saw them get smaller and smaller as they sailed away over the reach in the very light wind. It was a still morning with a sort of hard gray rawness on it which made all things grim. The last face I saw of them was the second mate's face. He was standing up in the stern, sheets steering the boat with an oar. We never saw them again. Whether they were drowned or starved or run down or wrecked, we never heard. They just sailed away into who knows what. Perhaps the natives killed them. Natives were a bad lot in those days. They cut off many poor fellows who were wrecked there. I like to think that they are all alive somewhere, though I'm afraid they were all dead before we left Port Misery. I like to think of them getting into the interior, to the settlements, to some good place or another, mining or ranching. Not much chance of it, of course. We were very melancholy after they had gone, but by the end of the day we had begun to be the brighter for it. We were so sure that they would get to the channel and be picked up by some ship. 
i remember that we talked among ourselves about the probable length of our stay there the boat had sailed on wednesday morning she would be in the channel at latest we thought by thursday noon allowing for some delay in finding the way out of the pocket where we were thursday at three p m as we reckoned would be about the time for the pacific liner from punta arenas to chile and if the pacific liner passed the boat in a fog or snow squall as she well might there would still be the coronel lyons boat going the other way with the chilean mail we reckoned to be out of the place aboard a good big liner within forty-eight hours we waited three solid weeks there at first we were on tender hooks all day long friday was a bad day we were up betimes to make a smoke on mount misery as a sailing mark most of us stayed on the mount all the morning going down in relays to get stuff for the fire a kind of dry moss a kind of peat towards noon we began to get anxious lest the shepherd boat should come in a fog i think all of us were a little afraid lest by some accident we should get left there it was absurd of course but misfortune often makes people childish soldiers often cry when they have to fall back from a position i've seen men cry because there was no water in the water pan after a day in the desert cry i've cried myself one only grows up in certain things a man's a great baby in most things till the end women have more sense by the early afternoon we had all left the mountain for the beach we stood about on the beach looking out up and down the sound but there came no trace of any ship not even the sound of a siren we kept talking among ourselves saying that it wouldn't be long before she came or making excuses for her but in our hearts we thought all the time that the boat had come to grief somewhere at dark we built up a good fire on the beach to guide them to us if they should come in the night a good roaring blaze ought to show for five or six miles or more we all worked hard gathering fuel for it we still hoped of course for the steamer but by dark we felt that something had gone wrong none of us said so only nobody protested when the captain put us back to our allowance of salted bird ever since the ship sailed we had been eating as much as we pleased thinking it foolish to stint ourselves when our misery was so nearly over now the captain served out the allowance twice a day it was roughly salted seabird tasting of fish bat oil and salt sometimes we had soup of it what made it so horrible was its sameness well we picked watches that night some of us kept a bright lookout by the fire till saturday morning we saw nothing of any ship once we had a great start thinking we heard the wash of a steamer's screw somewhere far off in the night but it was nothing two of us said definitely that they had heard a ship a third thought it was like a ship's screws but that it came from somewhere in the land we listened with our ears close to the water's edge but no sound came along the water our friends had been mistaken perhaps they heard a little fall of shale from one of the cliffs or perhaps a big seabird or flock of birds swooped into the sea with that rushing scutter which sends them sliding twenty feet along the surface anyway it was not a ship's screws which they heard that was not the only start we had during those watches a shooting star fell low down and close to us as it seemed so near to the water that those who saw it mistook it for a rocket that was a lively alarm while it lasted 
but it did not last long, of course. We very soon saw that we were wrong. After that, nothing happened till daylight left us all free to turn in. Saturday was not so hard to bear as Friday. The first disappointment in the keeping awake all night left us all a little dull and stupid. It was on Sunday that the real hardships began, for then we began to look at each other to see if anyone was going to be brave enough to see what all felt, that we were in a tight fix, without much chance of getting out of it. The captain was a good man. He called us all up to him after midday dinner. He was an elderly man, sixty-five or so, married with a family. He gave us a lecture on the situation which did him credit. He had lost his ship. He was hardly likely to get another at his age, even if we ever reached home. He had more home ties to brood over, and a harder future to look forward to than any of us. But he was captain still. He was responsible for us. I can't remember that he ever showed by any sign that the cards were against us. He told us that, although the boat had not returned, we were not to give up hope on that account. We were to pluck up heart and cross no rivers till we came to the water. All the same, he said, we were beginning to be melancholy, which was a sign that we hadn't enough to do. He had been wrecked before, he said, on the coast of Haiti. I remember he made us all laugh here during his account of the wreck by telling us how the captain of his ship had come ashore without his trousers. He had said on that occasion want of work had made the crew very melancholy, so that there had been a lot of trouble, men drowning themselves in silliness of that sort. He wasn't going to have anything of that kind while he commanded, so in future we were to work. The usual work of the camp, getting fuel, killing birds, keeping the fire going and cooking, was not enough for us. He was going to set us a new task, which he meant us to do. We were to explore along the shore of the sound till we found out where we were. We were to split up into parties of exploration. One-third of the company was to stay in camp in case the boat should return. One-third was to go up, the other third to go down the sound. Each exploring party was to travel for three days in its particular direction before returning to camp to report. So let us all cheer up, he said, and never mind the rotten rock, but step out boldly and find the channel. We cheered him when he finished. Afterwards we drew lots to decide which of us should go. I was drawn for the party of camp keepers, unfortunately for myself. The captain was quite right. Want of work does make shipwrecked people melancholy. Those black crags and the water like steel and the flurries of snow always blowing past. Never enough to lie more than an inch, if as much but always dusting down, fine and dry, on that dry cold wind from the pole. Ugh, that was a horrible place. It lowered at one, and almost every day it started to blow a short howling southwester which loosened your joints, a whirl of snow driving everything in a yell of wind which was like death, and nothing very much to do except to sit still and watch the snow coming. Well, I learned then that I had wasted my time from my youth up. I had been to school to an English school, that is, where I had learned to play cricket and to write very bad Latin verses. And now, for the first time, I was face to face with something which really taxed my mind and showed me where I was empty. Some of my education had given me a tough, active body. Another part of it had made me cheerful and able to take whatever came without grumbling and troubling. But when I came to overhaul my mind for something to amuse myself and take me out of myself, 
I found that I had very little, less even than the sailors. The sailors knew how to make things with their hands. They knew how to sing, how to dance step dance, and how to endure. Whatever they knew, they knew thoroughly. It was a part of their lives. Whatever I knew, I knew partially. It was something I had read in a book. You must remember, too, that I was a landsman, the only landsman there. Well, I had to find my amusement in myself or go melancholy mad, like the men in the captain's story. I set to work to imagine my home in the country. Whenever I was not working at my share of the camp duty, I was imagining the country which I knew as a boy. It was nothing very wonderful, of course. It was a little piece of Shropshire, with a radius of about three miles, more or less. But it was England, and home, and whatever was dear to me. I went over every little bit of it time and time again. I tried to reconstruct that countryside in every detail, to make it real to my mind, so that I might, as it were, live there, or imagine myself living there, whenever the horror of camp misery became too great. I had lived in that little bit of the world for all the years of my boyhood, and when I came to build it up in my mind, so as to rest in it, there was so much that I had to write down as unexplored. There were so many blank spaces, fields which I had never entered, fields with shapes which I had forgotten, brooks with rapids and shallows which I could not place correctly, hedges into which I had never looked, animals and birds which I had shot at, perhaps, but never really known about. That seemed so strange to me when I thought of it in Camp Misery, that I should have taken those creatures' lives without knowing what life meant to them, without ever having tried or thought of trying to know each strange little atom of life, so different, yet so alike. I made up my mind then and there that if I ever got back to England I would not waste my time again. I would look at the world with very different eyes. I would never forget, as I walked about, that the world is a continual miracle to be looked at earnestly, and remembered, and read. Every little bit of the world is beautiful and interesting, unspeakably. The more closely you look at a thing, the more interesting it will become. All wisdom and all progress come from just that faculty of looking so closely at a thing that one can see its meaning as well as its appearance. When I had realized I had wasted my time, and that I must never do so again, I realized, of course, that in a little while, perhaps, I should be away from that place forever. Yet it might be that in England or elsewhere, in a fit of loneliness, I might long for that place and wish myself back there among the rocks. I said to myself that a man's moods are very fickle. Hate is only love turned upside down. I might love my memory of this place within the year. I felt that it was my duty to take an exact record of it, so that in after years I might never feel that I had failed to get out of it all that it had to teach me, so that I might not rebuke myself when a few comfortable weeks at home had turned my present hate of it the right way up. And when I came to examine it, and to look into it closely, there was an infinity of beauty and interest in it. I began to puzzle out to myself how it was that the plants and creatures had adapted themselves to the natural conditions there, why the moss was as it was, why the seaweeds were as they were, why some of the birds had longer bills than others, and what the rocks had been long ago, before the wear of the weather ground them down. I went out on the next search expedition. We went about twenty miles along a never-ending wilderness of inlets. We didn't find anything, except on the last day, one thing, 
a little cairn of stones with an iron bar sticking out of it and a tin box tied to the end of the bar some of the sailors thought that it was the mark of some shipwrecked crew but it was really a surveyor's mark it had been there for years and years evidently we opened the tin box hoping to find in it some writing from civilized people you cannot imagine how eagerly we broke it open we felt like people rifling the tomb of a king of egypt we did not know what secret might be hidden inside there was nothing much inside except scraps of what had once been writing paper smeared with what had once been ink all quite illegible there wasn't even enough writing to let us guess the date of the writer we couldn't make out from the position of the cairn whereabouts the open sea or the channel ought to be for the very good reason that we were still on the wrong side of the sound and we found afterwards that the sound reached on inland thirty miles from the furthest point reached by our explorers so that it would have taken us a good five or six days further tramp to get round it to the side from which we could see the channel we had been wrecked most miraculously in the most awkward possible place the ship could have chosen for us if we had not been picked up by another miraculous chance we should have left our bones there the day before we went ashore one of the hands had been set to put new lifelines on the life boys of which of course we carried several while well, as he worked upon them he managed to knock one overboard he took a glance up and down to make sure that the loss had not been seen and then went on with another life-boy as though nothing had happened as a matter of fact a great deal had happened for he had saved all our lives merely by knocking that life-boy overboard the life-boy had the name of the ship inesina painted upon it while it floated it was sort of an advertisement of us anybody who found that life-boy would say to himself yes the ship inesina has passed this way and something strange has happened on board her the Inesita ran ashore the day after leaving Punta Arenas. She was bound through the straits to a place called Coronel in southern Chile. While at Punta Arenas she lay at moorings near a ship called the Chiloe, which was about to sail through the straits for the same place when we left the port. I suppose she started some twelve hours after us. Quite by chance her lookout man saw our lost life-boy bobbing in the sea. He reported it to the officer of the watch, who had it fished on board. When the officer saw that it was the Inesita's boy, he reported it to his captain, who came on deck at once. It was a very blind, bad part of the straits. Anyone finding a boy in such circumstances would have jumped to the conclusion that something was seriously wrong. A few minutes later it happened that the captain of the Chiloy saw what he took to be drifting wreckage, a cask and a half-submerged case or two, which looked like a waterlogged boat or floating hen-coop. His mate said it was undoubtedly ship's wreckage, and added that it looked like the mash-up of the Inesita. They agreed that they had better poke about a bit, to see what evidence they could find. They sent a man aloft to the crow's nest, to look out for boats and survivors. But then down came out of the bad straits squalls, yelling like a battle. It gave them plenty to think of for the next hour or two. As for seeing through it, that was impossible. One couldn't see ten yards for the ship, nor hear a hail nor a signal. What with the wind blowing the snow into their eyes, and tearing off the tops of the waves to fling them as they froze over their heads, and the worst bit of the straits ahead, those officers had no time to think of the Inesita. They had to use all their wits to make a head against the storm and to win through to safety. When the squall blew over, there was no trace of the Inesita's wreckage. 
what had been mistaken for it lay ten miles astern the chiloe continued her passage westward when she reached coronel she reported the finding of the boy and the sighting of floating wreckage people concluded that something had happened and that we were all drowned somebody cabled it to england and a distorted line about it got into the papers but an elderly woman a very good energetic soul a great friend of mine saw the announcement and wondered if i had got ashore by any chance she felt quite sure at last that i was alive there somewhere living on shellfish watching for a ship she cabled to the british consul in punta concha but the consul could tell her nothing further in his opinion the inesita had sunk with all hands we were posted as missing and my relatives ordered mourning but not my good friend she was quite certain that i was alive somewhere she came up to london and set to work on the charts of the straits to see where i might have got to a nephew of hers a young naval officer helped her with them they had the position of the chiloe when she found the life-boy the set of the current and that was all they had to go upon or not quite all an eastward-bound steamer which ought to have passed the inesita near the mouth of the straits reported that she had seen no sign of us so that put the scene of the disaster if there had been one between the mouth of the straits and the place where the life-boy had been found they reckoned that the exact spot would be about twelve miles west of the spot where the life-boy had been found the young lieutenant said cable to the consul at punta concha tell him to send out a tug to explore but for some reason this lady had taken a prejudice against the consul something in his former cable made her suspect that he was not seriously interested she had had some experience of the ways of embassies years before when anxious about a friend in paris during the revolution of the commune she decided that nothing could be done through them in this case she was quite certain that i was alive there with other men and the feeling that she could do nothing to help me and that if she did nothing it might soon be too late was more than she could bear early in the afternoon she made up her mind that she would come herself to find me she obtained a sum of money found out that she could catch the liverpool mail-boat when it called at plymouth for the london passengers cabled for a berth in it raked together what warm clothes she could buy in the time and started directly at plymouth the agents of the steamship company told her that the ship was full those were the days of the great south american boom the ships came out from england crammed with people bound for the argentine chile and peru this particular ship the las casas was full to the hatches there was no room even in the steerage not a berth in her was to be had for money however my friend was not easily daunted she hired a boat piled her trunks aboard it and put out to meet the steamer which was due to arrive there to pick up the london passengers about midnight it was blowing pretty fresh with a good deal of rain but she was determined not to put back till something had been done a man would have gone to a hotel and smoked by the fire but my friend was not like that she knew that the ship might only stay an hour there or less even if there was no hitch she was going to run no risks presently the las casas came into the harbor my friend ran alongside as she came to moorings and they lowered a gangway for her and picked her up she said that she wanted to see the captain the captain was very busy but it is the custom of this world not to let people who really want a thing with their might and main have what they want if only they keep on long enough 
presently the captain came along fuming at being disturbed and very well inclined to be rude she told him her story then and there and asked him to take her on board offering to pay almost any sum for a berth if one could be found any berth a stewardess berth or one of the officers cabins but no it could not be done he said money was no object the ship was full he wouldn't take another soul aboard if the queen herself wanted a passage that was his last word he said and he was a busy man he couldn't stay there talking he had a lot to see to so away he went grumbling about a lot of silly women wanting to throw the ship overboard he left my friend aghast she sat down not knowing what to do for the boats in those days only ran once a week and a week's delay might be the end of everything presently her boatman came up grumbling to ask if she was soon coming to tell him what to do with her trunks he wanted to be gone from that he was wet through and the boat was taking in water for out there at the moorings it was bad weather for any boat so she told him to bring her trunks on board and go she gave him a sovereign for his trouble i don't know why they let her trunks come on board but in the confusion they did the boatman left them and went when he had gone she realized that she would be in a tight place if the captain should prove a tartar she saw herself being flung out of the ship into the tug which had brought the london passengers alongside presently an elderly stewardess came past my friend says that the instant that stewardess appeared she knew that she had come to get her out of her trouble she just rose up and said stewardess may i speak to you for a minute and the thing was done i am ashamed to think how much it may have cost her but she bribed that stewardess to give her her post within the next quarter of an hour they had settled everything they had changed clothes the stewardess told her of her duties and shown her roughly the map of the ship and where things could be found she had introduced her to a friend another stewardess who promised to help in every way she could and she had talked it over with the head steward to whom my friend promised five pounds if he would help her the real stewardess had only just time to get off the ship before the bell rang for the tug to leave five minutes later the las casas was out of the harbor butting into the heart of the channel with spray coming over her in sheets my friend was running about from passenger to passenger with tea and lemonade and ice she had practically no rest until the ship left lisbon after the ship left lisbon when my friend knew that she could not be put ashore she went boldly up and told the captain what she had done there was a scene at first he vowed that he would make her work the full passage to valparaiso he was not going to be cheated out of a stewardess in that way she was there on false pretenses she was a stowaway and she was this that and the other at last my friend told him frankly that among other things she was a lady and meant to be treated as one soon after that the captain was her very devoted humble servant laughing with her at the trick she had played him and admiring her pluck and energy he offered a berth for one was now vacant but she refused to take it she would be a stewardess she said as far as the river plate at montevideo at the mouth of that river she hoped to get some good welsh or english woman to take her place she did her work very honestly she was considered a model stewardess at montevideo she engaged a substitute but she would not leave her work till the day she left the ship at punta concha only thirty-four days after the Inesita went ashore she landed alone in a little gloomy magellan port where a prison and a consul's office stood out big above a lot of shanties and dockside clutter well there is no need to make a longer tale of it 
she learned that a sailing cutter out in the harbor was bound through the straits in two days she went aboard her and paid the captain to sail two days earlier than he had planned and three days from then the cutter discovered the inlet into which the inesita had found her way when we really saw the cutter coming up to us we were not much excited not so much as i had thought we should be we were a little dazed perhaps and in our hearts i think we were one and all a little sore about it that place had been home to us for all those days the first person whom i met when i got on board was my friend she was leaning over the bulwarks watching the boat come alongside she was wearing a kind of sea helmet or woolen face protector which covers the cheeks i didn't recognize her at first when i did recognize her i had no words with which to thank her she discovered me and i discovered what her friendship was worth End of section 28